Hi, I'm Shreen Patek, and this is Making Marketing. On today's episode, Buddha statues, motion-assisted filmmaking, and some harsh truths about the way the business works. The iconoclastic founder, CEO, and chairman of RGA, Bob Greenberg, joined me this week. We discussed RGA's origin story, the near-constant evolution from filmmaking studio to websites to investment to consulting that has marked its 41-year-old journey. I also got Bob to tell me about some interesting conversations he's had with RGA parent company chief, Michael Roth. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thanks for inviting me. Good afternoon. We're excited that you're here. So I was just telling you this before we started recording, but I have spent uh, the last couple of days rewatching old videos. And I remember actually the first time I had heard you speak um, at, it must have been an industry event. I think it was maybe about 10 or 11 years ago. And I think you'd said uh, something that you then repeated in one of the videos I was watching today, which was that sort of creativity has driven pretty much everything you've done and every decision you've made. And I wanted to start with that because I think on the surface, it's very simple statement, but I think it's actually a very complicated thing to actually make happen. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I think um, somebody told me that I said something that I didn't recall, but that creativity is our business model, which is not a bad um, concept. and I may or may not have said it, I'm not sure. But um, I, th- I think that in our business, um, the differentiation factor is always going to be creativity. Um, it's pretty difficult to run a creatively driven organization as opposed to one that's not. And, um, uh, you know, every day I'm reminded of that with the uh, talent that we have to. Um, try to uh, bring into RGA, um, the talent that's leaving. Um, retention is a huge factor. So yeah, it's a large part of what I do. Are creative people harder to keep or keep oh, happy? absolutely. There's, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's not even close. I mean, it's really, really difficult. So what's, so then you're obviously a very creative person. Mm-hmm. What, what's motivated you to keep going with the very hard work of starting a business like RGA, evolving it on a near consistent and constant basis and keep going with it? Because it's not, it's not easy. Well, the other um, part of our business model is change. And um, uh, creative organizations are constantly changing and rearranging uh, themselves. So, you know, I've made it part of um, our business to be sure that we're constantly evolving and changing, uh, which makes things much more difficult. Um, I don't remember a time where we weren't um, changing. So then let's go back all the way to the beginning, because I want to start with the origin story, which some people I think are familiar with in bits and pieces, and some people might not be. Tell me about sort of the moment that you said, okay, RGA was, you would call RGA was born. I know it wasn't called RGA, so we can start with that. Well, it was our Greenberg Associates. My brother, um, who recently passed away, which is, was um, very difficult to deal with, but he, um, he's Richard, but everybody called him Dick, and I'm Robert, but everybody calls me Bob. But nonetheless, we shared the initials, so it became our forward slash Greenberg Association Associates. And that was 1977, so it's 41 going on 42 years. RGA came out of our Greenberg Associates. 
uh, much later. I was working for my uncle, and I was happy to be doing that. I, he was an amazing entrepreneur, self-made, uh, sold his company to Royal Crown Cola. Um, I opened, through the sales that I generated, a, a factory in Canada, in Toronto. So when you're working with an um, organization as a general manager or vice president, something like that, you wind up understanding production, which would be the factory. You wind up understanding sales, and you wind up understanding the office. So my uncle, for it's too long a story, but he, he left uh, because there was a, a, a lawsuit between he and his sons and Royal Crown Cola, and I had the same last name, so I had to leave as well. And you know, I decided to go into business with my brother, who really was just by himself. He had a rep, and he had started a company in an area called Motion Graphics before there was a name Motion Graphics. <laughs> I don't think anybody knew what that was. No. Like that. It was um, animation. Uh, it was related to um, what uh, Charles Eames and Sal Bass were doing at the time. And they were the real most dynamic uh, mm -hmm. two people in the industry. And he got job offers from both, but he wound up taking a job with Pablo and Jose Ferro, who also became, you know, really um, amazing talents in the area of motion graphics and uh, titles and um, animation. And um, so... Uh, we started in 1977, just the two of us, with about $12,000. What was it like starting something with your brother? Well, the weird part was I was in uh, Midtown, sleeping on the floor in a uh, really tiny two-level apartment building, just 800 square feet with both floors, and it was quite bohemian, and it was quite different than being a corporate executive, vice president of a company in Canada with offices throughout Canada. So, so it was, uh, you know, when you look back, I tell people to do that. Um, it probably was my happiest time yeah. because, you know, it was really creative. It was really inspirational. We were just starting. Uh, we were inventing a lot of things as we went along. We wound up pretty quickly doing the opening titles to Superman, which led to um, our entree into entertainment and Hollywood. And over time, we wound up working on about 400 feature films mm -hmm. and thousands of commercials, which then eventually led to the next iteration, which was an agency. Were you and Richard very different people when you were starting the company as sort of co as founding things together sort of bringing different things to the table mm -hmm. kind of what was the what was that dynamic well it was really um we were very different so he uh as a very creative person was the uh creative art director and i was the uh producer and just because we didn't have anyone at the time I uh, became the cameraman as well, which is very uh, unlike something I would be particularly good at because I kept forgetting when, when you're doing visual effects, um, sometimes you have as hundreds of layers 
onto one frame of film, and you're going back and forth uh, with pin-registered cameras and working off of what's called a layout sheet, but you still have to remember if you took that uh, exposure or not. And when I would just think, oh, did I take that or didn't <laughs> I take that? And then I'd have to run to Movie Lab, which was on the west side. It was a factory of uh, people working on a film, which was, you know, communications uh, recording of, of that period of time. And you'd flash the negative, as they called it, and you'd be able to see whether you did have a double exposure. And if I did, I'd have to go back and shoot something that maybe was four or five hours long. And and then I'd go out to um, to eat by myself with nobody else in the restaurant. You had no formal <laughs> training in kind of in Anything. any of this, right? <laughs> any of this. What was what was the vision? I mean, the, the most interesting thing. I've found about kind of RGA is that it's changed and evolved as many times as it's wanted to and you've wanted it to. And it's also mirrored, but also kind of stayed a step ahead of same changes that are happening in the industry, which is what's made it successful. What was in 1977 or maybe 1980, what were you thinking you would do? Well, um, I believe in... um well, first of all, I had terrible dyslexia, so that's um, a, a real problem. Uh, it it manifests itself when you can't find uh, something with location, and now GPS is very helpful. Mm-hmm. It's it is terribly difficult when you're trying to read because I had a version where I visualized every word, which really slows you down, and then you know. Uh, because of that, if I only finished in a test um, 30 40%, you can imagine, you didn't do very well. I think I may have had the lowest SAT either in the state of Illinois or the country, which we're not sure. And, you know, now they have untimed tests. Now I've been on a lot of uh, university boards. I did graduate, but I don't really recall doing it. Um, I really respect education. And I respect people who are self-taught because um, they have to invent a lot of things Mm -hmm. and they have to uh, take much greater risks and they have to be quite able to adapt. And we look for that in a lot of the talent or people that have done something but they haven't done something else and giving Mm -hmm. them the opportunity to change. So... um, so there's there's a lot of examples of self-taught uh, entrepreneurs, but now we're we're about two thousand people, we're in seventeen countries, and I'm the CEO, so I also handle the financial part, which I was particularly bad at when I was younger, hmm. because I'm very good at math when I have a computer, and quite bad when I have to add columns <laughs> or do it manually. So. You know, I just I was helped a lot by the ad, the introduction of a computer. Mm-hmm. And so you you know you've started this company. You've started doing a lot when it comes to feature films, Alien. You sort of tried. You've started experimenting and going to that world. And then new things were added to RGA. You started doing new things that you weren't doing before. Talk to me a little bit about kind of adding all of these different capabilities and all the changes you had to make along the way while also continuing to run the business itself. Right. Well, I'm a big fan of integration 
and I'm a big fan of diversification. So we brought, over time, the entire feature film or television production model in-house as an integrated effort. And in the second iteration of uh, the company past the motion graphics, it really was computer-assisted filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And I became very, very... um, interested in computers. When I was up in Canada working for my uncle, we had a, uh, a DEC, a Digital Equipment Corporation, PDP-8, which had the memory of a flea or something like that. And I like turned, uh, I created with uh, people that worked for me an automatic boxing uh, part of our, our manufacturing process. And then when I left, I started to bring a computer the computerization to, to animation. Mm-hmm. And it's an absolutely perfect example of, you know, sort of CAD CAM and uh, a great use of integrated pre-visualization and sort of the manufacturing of um, film. When you started doing computer-assisted and started talking about that, was there pushback? Because it was pretty early. Uh, there was more than pushback. Everything that I did, pretty much all the way until the current day, there's been tremendous pushback. So people feared that when you started to computerize the process, you'd lose the tactile creative integration that people were doing all by hand. And later when I added, we were one of the very first companies to add uh, Unix to what we were doing, and I bought our license directly from the person who started Sun Microsystems back in the day. But uh, there was pr- there were protests in the office against that, and they really felt the same thing when we integrated video. Mm-hmm. The people that were film purists hated video, and I saw it as a, a way to pre-visualize everything in a way that uh, turned out to be a really big differentiator for us as we were the first ones to do that. So pushback's been a common theme when trying to make change happen. Yep, I think um, if I see enough of it, that means I'm on the right track. <laughs> That's, so when it, was there ever, especially in the earlier days, that was it hard to bring people on sort of on this journey and try things with you and what did you learn from sort of doing that multiple times as you kept evolving the company? Well, the, there's a story. You could cut it out, of course. It may be a little bit too... Um, but um, there was... Um, we worked with Silicon Graphics Machines. They were the computer of the time. And Jim Clark had founded Silicon Graphics. And I went to visit him in uh, San Francisco... And he always used the F word. So he said, um, so why the fuck are you here? And I said, wow. And that really put me on the spot because I couldn't remember why we had made the appointment. I flew all the way out there. He said, I'm so busy. I just got managed out by the board. They don't understand what I'm doing. And then I remembered I wanted to, as 1993, talk to him about interactive advertising. So... He said, wow, well, that's different. Oh, and he looked at his watch and he said, um, okay, come with me. So he like took me into his office and he showed me Mosaic, which um, is very interesting. He said, he's um, 
going to open up a company called Mosaic, and uh, which eventually became um, Netscape. And when I saw that there was an interface into the internet, I went back and spent a year trying to sell our company so that, because I couldn't do it without the help of doing that, so that we could move into the internet. And I had been through everybody telling me that um, computer graphics, of which we were one of the first companies in the world to really put together a complete uh, CGI capability. I brought all the people over from um, Tron and Lock, Stock and Barrel, I think every one of them. And they also protest, as I recall, we were set up to work in what's called VMS Fortran, largely used by very big uh, companies. And they wanted to move to Unix. So they protest against VM, VMS Fortran. And I had invested, which was a lot at the time, about a half a million dollars in it. And I just uh, dumped it and went to Unix. I, I agreed with them when, when I saw what Unix was about. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think when we moved from having where we were working on the largest features at the time, um, Mission Impossible, but you know there was always various movies, and um, uh, we were shooting a uh, commercial with Wine and Kennedy for Jordan. Mm-hmm. So those are two of the best things we were shooting in VistaVision, which was large format negative, and uh, we went to Interactive, where at the time. I recall Craig from Razorfish, who was a student at MIT who I met. I used to teach there uh, occasionally. And um, I had met him, and he came to visit us. And he showed me this thing that they did in the Razorfish subnetwork where they could get a person to blow a smoke ring. And that's where the uh, internet was. You couldn't even animate a slide. And I was moving from the largest format, big Hollywood features to the slowest, lowest resolution internet stuff. And of the 175 people or so that worked for me, 30 came with. So uh, it's a long way to answer your question. (laughs) But people didn't follow me everywhere. What about as as it kind of kept going and, you know, it, turned into also a bigger company, a different company. It was, it had, you know, a holding company involved it. Um, so IPG is now involved and you've got a, probably a bigger management team and executive team. You're doing more and more things. You mentioned earlier that sort of knowing that you had some pushback probably meant you were doing something new and innovative. Um, tell me about, especially as the business evolved to do more product, to do a lot more than kind of traditional commercials, although that was a big part of it, then to do more consulting, kind of that transformation that RGA always talks about came with somewhat of a price at some point. Yep. Um, Well, first of all, you know, I always thank um, Michael, Frank, and Philippe from IPG because they've been great partners and um, it's been since 2001. Um, I sold the company in 1995. That's exactly when all the interactive companies were going public. The, um, 
you know, each one of the latest things that we're doing is the same story. Uh, when we went into consulting, the, the people that were in, that are in, um, let's say, camp, the campaign part of advertising started to feel we weren't the right company for them anymore because we were moving into something very different. When I went to Michael to um, ask him if we could open up a... Um, a accelerator. This is Michael Roth. Yes, Michael Roth, um, the CEO of IPG. He said, absolutely not. And then when we said, you know, we'd be connected to ventures, he said, we're not a bank. And then uh, I said, Michael, you know, no is the beginning of yes. And uh, he said, yeah, I know the effing no is the beginning of yes thing. And, um, and then eventually he said yes. And now we've uh, started in our program of acceleration over um, 100 companies. Mm -hmm. And we're almost always Series A and Series B now. We're taken very seriously in Silicon Valley. We're better known there than in the advertising business. The same thing happened with consulting when we started to change and go after the consulting business as the consultants were moving into our business. What's interesting about it is at sea level, almost always, it's about innovation, which even the consultancies don't really have a practice and they're starting to, just as we are, but it really took off. Do you think the industry as a whole could do with a little bit, being, being okay with a little more change, the way sort of you've kind of pushed RGA to change where needed in response sometimes to market forces? It depends on which part of the industry we're talking about because generally speaking, the advertising business is really terrible at change. So you have to go back to the time of the very beginnings of, of advertising with Ogilvy or DDB and Leo Burnett and the Mad Men years, you know, the outbound side of the business, commercials and, and print and radio. And, you know, I always have been able to predict what was going to happen. And with the agency business, I predicted the deconstruction of it, uh, but I didn't predict when because I'm really not very good at that. And it's way longer than I thought. That the deconstruction so, has happened way later than you thought? Yes. Hmm. Um, I, I, I sort of peg the deconstruction as I look at it to uh, August, uh, uh, July, August of uh, 2016. And what, what you'll see is you, you may be writing about it, you may, we, people may be reading about it, but it's really a combination of layoffs and reduction in space. And um, that's where you see it. So you see the... Um, the agencies sort of deconstructing, particularly in some locations throughout the world where the bricks and mortar buildings aren't necessary. So that's and economics. And the staff is trained, yes. Mm -hmm. So it's economics that's driving it. And what about the things that so many of these agencies, you know, in some ways are built on? I mean, if you were built on making only websites and you kept making websites and then turns out making websites now is easier than it used to be, and so people don't need to hire out and spend a ton of money to do it, then that's always going to be, that's just market forces. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, well, website's a good example. Um, do you know uh, Squarespace or Shopify, um, you know, make it very easy to do a uh, 
traditional website. But to do a really complicated website, you still need a company like RGA. And we, we do quite a lot of it. I just looked at something that we did that uh, took better part of a year in, in Tokyo. So it's our Tokyo office uh, that launched this. I saw it for the first time last night. And then there's applications and there's lots of other things that you have to tie into the website. Mm-hmm. I, I sort of go along with Bezos, who a few years ago, maybe even longer, said that we're in day one of the internet. So I, I believe that's true. So I think what's problematic with our industry is not only do they not move into the new things, but they move off of things into more shiny objects before it's time to do that. So I think it's a combination of, of the two. And they're not really great at taking chances. So what often happens is they rely on being uh, quite good at um, uh, talking the talk, you know, without walking it. And some people don't realize that our business, when you go back to the uh, Mad Men era, is about the um, art of persuasion. So you can talk the talk better than anybody else can talk the talk. And I sometimes listen to it um, in presentations. I think, wow, you know, if I was a client, I would not know. You'd have to really look many levels past to see what their work is really like in a very specific area, which they're doing now. And that's what's creating a lot Mm -hmm. of the deconstruction. There are peculiarities to the business, media, advertising, that in some ways, at least in the short term, reward the talking because if it's a pitch-based business or it's a, you know, you have to make that decision like that, that it's almost like the business is constructed to reward that until you get down to the actual brass tacks. I think that um, we're finding that when we we win business, it's often because they realize that, that that the other company isn't really qualified in a particular area. Mm-hmm. So you have to invest in it, and you have to hire the best people, and you have to integrate it. So, And you have to make money at it. All, all those things become a little bit more complicated than uh, continuing to do things as, as they were. One of the other things that you've said quite a lot in different permutations and iterations has been that you you know thinkers have to make, that thinkers, you can't just think. Um, you can't just strategize without execution. How has that played out, you know, through your career at RGA, but also, you know, you've always talked about design playing a very big role in how you've approached building RGA, but, and also so many of the other things you've done. How do you balance the two? Well, um, thinking now has become, you know, very strategic. So that's one, one part. And then whether... So, you know, we're, we're of the opinion um, that what you need to be able to present to a client is a concept, so it's very conceptual. You have to be able to have it be uh, strategic. So we're very interested in making things, so we would make something that would uh, uh, be about that, which, which involves, um, you know, a very different group of people, and then we would market it. So... We think the communications piece is still uh, critical, but it's it's um, coming more at the end of a process than um, where we used to get involved 
with companies, um, and we're more involved in the in the sort of um, making and and then uh, talking about things. We 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 um, we recently came up with a um, a new tagline. Um, we've had many of them. We've had it's all about the work. We've had it. Agency for the Digital Age. We've had Connected by Design is a, a, a big one, which we'll talk about as it relates to design. And that now it's uh, Transformation at Speed. Uh, when I was at a bunch of meetings with clients, what they all talked about is how slow the agencies are. It doesn't mean that clients can't be incredibly slow. It takes forever to win a project um, in, a, in a, a pitch. But they feel that the agencies move way too slow. And transformation is really about innovation. And um, on the sea level, at the sea level, that's the most important thing on their mind. And if we could get in to see a client and lay out what we're really doing, we have a very good uh, chance of being asked to work on an um, innovation project of the C-level, uh, could be CIO, could be the mm-hmm. CFO or CEO, whatever. And it doesn't come out of the marketing budget, which is also very interesting. And that's been a big shift that's it's happened. Been a that's big been shift. important to notice, if yeah. not actually used for an agency. We just won a piece of business, and really they didn't have any money, which we knew in the marketing side, but they do in the innovation um, side of the business. So, yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about sort of the connected by design as it related to growing RGA, but also sort of as it being a motivational and guiding force for you. Well, just as I've mentioned that creativity is a differentiator, so is uh, design. So the business, when you go back all the way to the uh, Mad Men era or looking at some a company like uh, Ogilvy, in the particularly in the communication side, it's about reductionist thinking. And they could take an entire company and make a 30-second spot that's relevant to the business. And that, that's what um, TV commercials have been about for a very long time. Well, design is the, um, the, um, the best example of reductionist thinking whether it's in print or radio or television production, a website, um, an application, um, uh, uh, a um, a presentation, everything, Mm -hmm. um, as you know, uh, works better when it's um, simplified. And so design um, follows through all those connections in our industry, in our business, and we hire people that are particularly good at coding, but in a way that's really easy to access. So it goes across everything we've talked about. And design is the, um, like creativity is one of the key factors <clears throat> in, um, uh, you know, less is more. You're also a collector, a curator. What has been most recently one of your, one of the things that you've sort of been obsessed with or interested in when it comes to just beautiful things and beautiful objects? Um, well, I've, 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 I have um, <clears throat> many collections, but 
the most recent one is Chinese Buddhist sculpture. And I, um, I built a glass house um, upstate that's uh, got a lot of um, uh, interest from architects and designers. Um, and um, I realized that in, in the glass house, there's four of them actually, you can't put um, works on paper, um, oil paintings, um, um, drawings, uh, photographs, anything like that because of the uh, sun, even with the special um, glass. So I um, was walking down the street in Hudson and I saw a Buddhist head, um, which, you know, were very beautiful. And I realized that that could work. So I went in and bought that and it led to, um, I'm sure I'm the largest collector of two dynasties, uh, one being the Qi dynasty uh, from 550, 577 AD, and then the Wei dynasty that preceded it. Um, so my newest thing, which came the other day, was a um, bodhisattva uh, head of uh, from the Wei dynasty. And I really didn't want to buy it. But what? then, and that, that's collecting, you know, you become obsessed with... Um, this fits into the collection very well, and it's a different uh, version. I'm very um, interested in religious art. It just, I'm not a Buddhist, and I'm not, not a Buddhist. I mean, I'd rather be a Buddhist than something else, but I, I'm not an organized religious person. And um, so, um, yeah, so I, I, uh, in all my spare time, I read about, slowly, but I read about um, Chinese Buddhist art in the period of time that I'm collecting. Right. Lots of dynasties, including the RGA dynasty. Greenberg, <laughs> yeah. thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's Bob Greenberg of RGA. Our producer is Gianna Capadona. If you like the show, please subscribe. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere fine podcasts are to be found. Leave us a review, rate the show. I'm Shreen Batik. We'll see you next week.